This is John Esperian, author of Content DNA, using consistency and congruence to be the same shape everywhere. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener, to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever you need to learn more about, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing world of marketing and sales in order to remain successful. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies to become better known, liked, and trusted in this modern era of the customer who doesn't want to be marketed or sold to. To learn more about the problems we solve, visit salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome John Esperian to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Content DNA, Using Consistency and Congruence to Be the Same Shape Everywhere. I'm now going to read from page 237 of the book, which is titled, About the Author. I just wanted to use this instead of the standard intro. This bit's always written in the third person, but I can't bring myself to do that, and I'm not important enough to have someone else write it for me. I'm a technical copywriter, which is a fancy title for someone who writes the words that go on business websites. I write explainer content for clients who are too busy or too close to their business to do it themselves. I'm an Apple fanboy based in South Wales, UK, and chose techie tinkering as a way of life when it became apparent that I had neither the aptitude nor dietary discipline to play for Liverpool FC. If you ever want to chat about writing or football, I'm easy to look up online. And interesting fact, John Esperian is a longtime listener to the Marketing Book Podcast. John, congratulations on Content DNA, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. I've been a longtime fan of this show. I've mentioned this show in my book, so it just feels appropriate that I finally made it here. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, John... You're ruining all my jokes because I was going to say, you know, I really liked your book, but then when I got to page 92, I lost all respect for you as an author. You know, it's just such a great, great show. You've got so much value here that that you've got top-line guests, and now you've invited me as well. So I don't know if I'm going to bring the level down, but um, no, no, I was so I'm so excited. It's so great, you know, just for people who don't have the time to read all of those great marketing and sales books, just to get a flavor for for what's out there in the market at the moment. And, you know, I've picked up a number of books as a result to, of listening to the authors being interviewed. So it's just such a valuable resource. And as I've told you before, this, this, is, this should be chargeable content. It's really fantastic. Well, if anyone does want to send some scotch my way, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and uh, <clears throat> just uh, just putting that out there, especially you listeners in Scotland. I know you get discounts on that stuff. So, John, you, I read through the book and you mentioned so many uh, books and that uh, where I've, I've read them or I've been had the honor of interviewing the authors and we share a, a similar interest in a lot of the same concepts. And uh, so it was... It was uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but let's get back to John Asperian. Okay, so you mentioned in that about the author page that you are a Liverpool FC fan, and for my American listeners, that means football club, <clears throat> and of course, it means soccer. Okay, so enough explanation. Now, you're a fan of Liverpool, and what happened with Liverpool yesterday? Well, we ended a 30-year wait 
to win the Premier League title. So it's our highest domestic accolade is to win the league title. And I was 13 last time it happened, and I didn't think I'd have to wait 30 years. But last night, it happened. So I'm over the moon right now. That's terrific. And so ever since they won, have you been out like setting cars on fire and things like that? (laughs) I've just been wondering when the baiting is going to stop from the fans of all the other teams saying, hey, you still haven't won it. What's going on? But um, yeah, it's been zero days since we've been Premier League champions. I'm very, very happy about that. Yes. And uh, now, is there a big rival, Manchester United? Yeah, that's that's always been the traditional rivalry, and they've won countless Premier League titles since the time that we last won. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, they've been lording it over us. They've had a bit of a dip in recent years, but... Um, mm-hmm. It's all good banter. It's all good fun. And uh, it's my way, a common way of remembering people is based on who they support. Yes. And, uh, well, it's all good fun, but I did see some things you posted. I started a fight on LinkedIn uh, about, you know, Liverpool and because I was interviewed on a live chat with some uh, fellows from Manchester United and a lot of their people listening in, their guests were they're uh, the people, the audience was, uh, Manchester United folks, and they started saying things about Liverpool, and I just thought, <laughs> I, you know, I I don't really have a dog in that fight, but um, I do feel that it was important that I stir up a hornet's nest, and boy, boy did I, because then I immediately pulled you and our mutual friend Peter Sumpton into the fight, and it got uh, it got ugly on LinkedIn. So you know, LinkedIn world, you're welcome. Good stuff. So now. You live in uh, South Wales, and I'm just curious, do you think that Prince Charles is an evil prince of darkness? Because you, you wrote that in your book. Yeah, well, that's the thing about demographics. You see, he's got the same age and, and a lot of the similar profile to Ozzy Osbourne, the real prince of darkness. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, not really a royalist, I'm afraid. I guess that doesn't transport very well when I go on holiday. Um, you feel more British when you're out of Britain. And so I kind see. of remember the Queen, but uh, no, I'm not much of a royalist, I must say. Yes, well, that, it was actually a very important point, and I've heard it. Um, I've heard a similar joke about Ozzy Osbourne and the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm. They're in the same demographic group, but yeah. couldn't be more different. And that's one of the follies of trying to target groups demographically rather than based on uh, you know, the buyer persona or the pen portrait that you talk about, which we're going to talk about. Sure. So the foreword of the book is written by uh, Mark Schaefer, who is, as you know, the king of the Marketing Book Podcast. And I was so interested to note that he spells the word honor with the British spelling, H-O-N-O-U-R. So I guess I'm going to have to give him a lot of uh, grief about that. You know, he's, he's been probably watching a lot of Downton Abbey, so he's trying to, you know, become more, more British. But I wanted to read a something from the very beginning and get into it. You write, this book's for you if you're a business owner who wants better control over your brand identity and marketing so that you can be noticed, remembered, and preferred in your industry. Even if you hire someone else to implement the tactics to make this happen, you'll understand the underlying lessons involved. And then you go on to write, Content DNA is based on the advice I give to my private copywriting clients and help them create the right footprint in their industry and remain relevant and superior for years to come. My hope is that it can do the same for you. So, John Esperian, let's get started. What is Content DNA? Well, it's the fundamental building blocks that define the shape of your brand. And when I talk to my copywriting clients, they're people who come to me thinking that they're buying words. And instead, I, I, I go back to them and say, look, what is the DNA of this business? You know, what are you all about? What are you trying to stand for? What values are we trying to represent? And very often, those clients have never really thought about that in any great detail. Or Worse, they think they have thought about them, and then they've created some glossy marketing deck, and that's got lost on a SharePoint drive somewhere, and they've just kind of ticked a box and say, yeah, we've got a brand. But that's not a brand, is it? A brand is something that has to you have to live. I don't think it can be a brand um, unless you, you hold firm 
to what your values are. And often just people just haven't done enough thinking about what shape it is that they want to put out into the world. So your content DNA is really simply an expression of what your brand is, what your brand shape is, um, formulated through four or five building blocks that run through every part of your business, not only your content, but just the way that you operate your business, the way you treat your staff, the way you treat your customers, essentially everything. It's DNA and therefore it's found in every part of your presence. Yes. And all so many of the things are the same things that I find myself uh, trying to explain to prospective customers or or even uh, reminding clients of. So of course I'll be stealing several of the way <laughs> phrases that you've uh, you've offered up to and metaphors. But one of the things I really liked, and this is where I thought, man, this guy's really talking to me, is right off the bat. You address the issue of why not just use ads? What do I need all this content for? How does John Asperian respond to that? Well, you know, ads can be useful. They're good when you've got no traction at all. And they're good when you're really, really, really big and you want to cement your place as a market leader when you're a Coca-Cola or you're a McDonald's. But everyone else falls in between. And for them, very often, ads are a cost. You turn them on, you might get some results, but the moment you turn them off, the moment you turn that tap off, everything falls off a cliff edge. Whereas building a content estate is is an asset. You've got a maturing asset that you could, that will work for you 24-7, potentially months or even years in advance, which ads will never do. So your content can talk to your future customers, not just your present ones, and ads can't do that. So I, I think it's much better if you're going to invest something in your marketing to invest it in content that will that will build as an asset that will that you'll be able to fall back on and that will answer the questions of your audience uh, rather than having uh, ads which might potentially be very expensive in the future and maybe no one will be paying attention to those ads in the future but I think everyone will be paying attention to good enough content I've once uh, heard of advertising as like a, a heroin addiction so it Evidently, when you are taking heroin, uh, it feels really good. It, it's, it's apparently just unbelievable. Um, I haven't uh, done heroin because I think I would probably enjoy it too much. <laughs> but apparently, when you don't have any more money, it all stops. So you know that's why I've, I've heard of advertising as sort of like a heroin addiction. And I can say all that because I was a former New York City ad man at, a, at, at big agencies on Madison Avenue. But there's another point, though, that you add in there, which I, I really loved. And you said that even the best ad in the world won't be effective for long unless it leads to a strong piece of content. What do you mean? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the ad is there to get your attention, to hook you into something. But an ad on its own is unlikely to convert into a sale. You're probably going to be pointing the person to some thing you've created. Maybe it's a video, maybe it's a white paper, maybe it's just a web page. And if that content sucks, then you've wasted your money getting those people through the door. So you might as well put the investment in the thing that you want them to consume and make that the thing that gets them over the line and focus on building your audience, your reach organically so that you don't have to rely on ads, but you do rely on good content. So yeah, ads alone are, are never going to be enough. Well, and also if you, there, there is absolutely nothing wrong with running advertising to promote your content. And you, you talk about that, Mark Schaefer, uh, you talk about his book, uh, The Content Code. I mean, it's so important to promote your content. And many uh, experts are now arguing you should spend more time promoting it uh, then you actually uh, or spend more time and effort promoting it than you are creating it. And creating it, you know, takes more and more time for for great content. Uh, so we're not we're not poo pooing advertising, but I just think it's not being used um, effectively with all the other things that uh, work so well now. 
You say the two key ideas to remember from this book are the need for consistency and congruence, or as you might say, congruence. What is congruence and why does it matter? Well, congruence is, in mathematics, the term given for objects that have the same shape. If you were to cut them out as stencils, they would stack on top of each other perfectly. What this means in marketing is being the same shape every time you show up, because that's the way that you build trust with people. You start to set an expectation so that people will know what they're going to get when they consume some piece of content of yours or deal with you. It's easier to trust you if you always show up and do the same thing each time. You know what you're going to get. And consistency matched with that. So so showing that shape, whatever it happens to be, over a long enough period is the path to being noticed and remembered and preferred. So I, I would say a congruent brand takes a small handful of truths and demonstrates them all the time, everywhere. Explain what you mean by a shape. You mentioned that a few times there. Yeah, well, it kind of ties into the to the um, the cover I've got on the book, which is mirrored on the shape of my logo. I just think you need to put your own stamp on your content so that something is recognizably you, so that the language that you use is recognizably you. The visuals that you use is recognizably you. And I sometimes say to people that when when the audience is busy scrolling their social media feed at 100 miles an hour, even if, even if they don't stop to consume your content as it scrolls by, if you've got a strong enough visual brand it will remind that person that you still exist, that you're still relevant to them in some way. You're still there. You're still involved in the conversation. And very often, people will they'll lean on you know stock imagery or inconsistent visuals, and that kind of thing doesn't set the does. It's not memorable. It's not differentiated enough. So I think having uh, a really clear visual brand is important, but also a, a very, very clear written brand. So I, I actually recommend my clients to um, to define their own language, you know, come up with their own hashtags, come up with their own words and phrases that other people don't use. Try and drill those into their customers so that they're defining their own dictionary, if you like. That way, it's something that's different, something that's memorable, and it is their own shape, their own stamp in the world. I find that the content that I read out there from, you know, different companies and, you know, different blogs, and even the podcasts I listen to, I'm drawn to personality. Yeah. And there's a sea of sameness <laughs> out yeah. there that's completely interchangeable from one company uh, to another. And I, that's why your, your book, Content DNA, DNA spoke to me, because uh, it's it's an antidote to that. Let's move on, though. What is the 30-month mindset? Hmm. Well, I, I got that, actually, from Mark Schaefer when we were talking about his book, Known, which I was a case study for, um, which he was writing in 2016 and published in 2017. And during his research, he found that um, – for everyone who'd had success that he'd interviewed, and I think he interviewed just shy of a hundred people for the book. Yeah, he, he didn't interview that, me, but but that's okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. He, I'm kidding. He found that on average, to become known, you needed to spend about two and a half years thrashing at that thing that you were trying to go narrow and deep on. And I've seen that as well in my own business, that the, the, the point when I came up with my own brand identity, which was really a bit of luck, if I'm honest with you, I was talking to Mark on stage, came up with this idea of being relentlessly helpful, put some brand values around that, and just went for it hard in one place. Uh, and, and about two and a half years after then, 
that's when I really started to see my business moving forward. And I've seen the same thing happen to other people. So the the point about the 30-month mindset is you will not grow biceps overnight if you just start going to the gym. That's not going to happen. You need to do more than putting out six blog posts and thinking that you're going to be number one on Google. This will not happen. It would take a miracle for that to happen. Actually, what you need to do is, is, is remember that reps build muscle and you've just got to keep showing up and be in it for the long term. And I say to business owners, look, if your business is, if you intend your business to be here in 10 years time, and I say to you, well, actually, you might be able to get significant success if you do this thing for two years, or maybe a bit more. That seems like a good deal to me. The people who are really impatient, who want to play, pay for ads, get to Google number one spot straight away, those ones tend not to stick around for very long. They're not in it for the right reason, and they tend not to succeed. Oh, welcome to my world. I, I have that conversation almost every week. And and actually, I, I guess maybe I still don't understand how can you run ads and get on the first page of Google unless you're buying ads? On Google, well, yeah, it's it's that it's just that short termism, isn't it? It's it's not a way to build a long term business for me. And this is where this is just one part. I want to read this other part because this was a religious experience for me when I was reading this. I wrote exclamation points all the way down the column uh, of the page. It says uh, it's on page twenty four. You say I want to put to bed any notion of there being some quick route to success. There is no easy button for your marketing. And yet, a common problem I see with a lot of my copywriting clients is that of impatience. They commission the writing of a few blog posts and then assume that this will magically get them to the top of Google with plenty of juicy leads to match. Or or they commission a whole new website and treat it as though it's a one-off project that gets done and then forgotten about. The internet doesn't work like that. Any positive effect that comes from a short-term action such as the creation of a new website or small set of blog posts won't last long unless you also have an ongoing strategy for adding new and valuable content to your audience. I just, I loved it. And it really spoke to, you know, some of the, well, the, the, the impulses that people have, that businesses have, uh, and the, the challenges that, that, uh, people in, in your line of work and mine uh, face on, on a weekly basis. Yeah, I mean, just to, to give an analogy, if if you suddenly turned around one day and said, hey, you know what, I'm going to eat clean. I'm going to eat really clean, and I'm going to eat clean for a month. Great. Where are you going to be in three years' time? <laughs> you know, are you going to be eating burgers again? Because it's not going to work. Eating clean for a month isn't going to work. <laughs> um, it's about so- consistency, yeah. Yeah, you've got you've got to show up until you get to the point where you've built enough of a brand strength, where maybe you can coast along a bit, and you've got an you've got a content estate to manage, and you've got some you know you've got some repeating things that you can sell based on your history of of providing good value. Then at that point, maybe you can do some coasting, but it takes a long time to get there, and I'm I'm sure that I'm not that point yet but a lot of people are just way too impatient and it's not going to work yes yes so later in the book you write if you don't share helpful content that answers people's questions someone else will and i tell you john i almost thought about stealing that and putting it as the headline on our agency's homepage. (laughs) what do you mean by that well it's this is one of the lessons i've got from another uh, previous guest of yours, Marcus Sheridan, who who wrote "They Ask You Answer," which is one of the best content marketing books out there. Here, here. it is the best, perhaps. So, yeah, you know, the internet is a really, really big place, and if you hold on to your secrets, um, someone else is going to give people the secret source. And when it comes to buying time, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the person who? who gave you their information freely in the first instance, or are you going to trust the person who you haven't really had any dealings with because everything is behind a gate or everything is, is you know, not published in any way, shape or form? Naturally, you're going to be more inclined to trust the person who's putting their knowledge out there. It shows their authority. 
It shows their confidence. It just gives all of the right signs. And yeah, if you can be the person who answers the question before anyone else and answers it better than everyone else, it's inevitable that you will gain trust with your ideal audience and therefore do business. Let me just add to that. And I hear that same term sometimes, the secret sauce. And I have a few thoughts about that. One is you don't have any secret sauce. In other words, most of the companies I talk to, what, what, what is this secret sauce you have? I, I just think that's an overblown concept. People don't have some secret sauce. But more importantly, that's not actually what they need to be talking about most of the time. In other words, like we uh, did a project for a company that does uh, cybersecurity. And they were saying, well, we can't show exactly how we do cybersecurity. Well, <laughs> you don't need to because uh, that's not what your prospective customers are really asking you about. And if they are, it's going to be after they're talking to you. We need to be answering their other questions online. And the pushback I sometimes get is, yeah, but everybody knows that. No, they don't. <laughs> or, well, who's answering that question? Nobody. Back to the, the original quote that I had there. Yeah. I think, I think the best thing we can do with businesses like that is to think about what are the possible objections? What are the possible hurdles to someone doing business with me? What reasons are there for that person to say no to me and move on? And we, we all know that the greatest competitor is not, you know, the guy down the road who's doing the same thing as you. It's inaction isn't it? Because yes. of, often because of fear, because you think, well, maybe it won't work. Maybe this is the wrong decision. Maybe if I hire this guy, my boss will fire me if I made a bad decision. So good content, I think, just knocks out as many objections as possible and leaves a clear runway through to doing business. That doesn't guarantee that business will happen. But if you do that, then it, it doesn't give people an easy option to say, ah, no, you know, this guy's not right for me. It makes it as easy as possible, frictionless for them to say yes, and therefore more people will convert. At my shop, we have this expression we use called uh, pool winterization. <laughs> it's based on a video Marcus put on his YouTube channel years ago. And it was because he, he has a pool company, and now he's a pool manufacturer, but uh, he's got a lot of things going on. But So what he did was – it's probably still there. The, a video of him – it could have been shot with an iPhone, and he said, Hi, I'm Marcus Sheridan, and I want in this video, I want to walk you through the steps you need to do so you can winterize your own pool. And it went on for a few minutes, but it was basically, okay, the first thing you have to do this, and you the reason you do that is you know, such and such. So it was a pretty straightforward uh, video explaining. It was just wonderful. Well, apparently after he had that video, he started getting a lot of phone calls from people, and they said basically, hi, I watched your video about how to winterize a pool. Can you come winterize our pool? <laughs> That's it. That's it. If, if you give away your process and you go into forensic detail about how it works, there will be a small proportion of people who will be able to follow that to the letter and do everything for free and will never contact you. But they're not the people that, that you need to worry about. <laughs> you know, they, they, they are essentially irrelevant. If you, if you put your process out there, there will be another group of people who will go, oh, okay, here's step one. Great. Step two. All right. Okay. Well, by the time we've got to step, step 20, it's like, hmm, okay, maybe this guy actually knows what he's doing. <laughs> I could save myself a lot of time just by giving him some cash and then I can go and do whatever my day job is, you know? So it's, um, I, I just haven't had a problem with that and, and, Countless others haven't. You put your information out there. People build trust with you. They see that you know what you're talking about. They see that you're not some kind of cowboy, that you're being open, transparent, all of the good things. And inevitably, they will get in touch. A proportion of them will and say, could you just do this thing for me? I trust you. Let's do it. Where do I sign? Right. And he's demonstrated his expertise. Yeah. And, and the sales call is probably faster because he doesn't have to explain well, here's what I'm going to do. 
Yeah, that's right. And and, and the, the great thing about putting your personality into that content, which is a big thing that my clients don't do until I come along and, you know, give them a nudge here and there, is that you attract the kind of people who get you. Yes. And if you if you if you close deals with those people, they'll be happier with the service. They'll be less likely to complain. They'll probably be willing to pay more at the point of sale because they like you anyway, mm-hmm. and they'll be more likely to tell other people, "Hey, John's a good copywriter. Let's let's go with him." So so there's all sorts of value in not only putting your process out, but just doing it with your own personal stamp. Um, so that you attract the people who actually buy into you, who are your thousand true fans, let's say, and who who are you know desperate to work with you, pay more, happy with the service, recommend you. All of that good stuff comes from being brave enough to put your personality into things. Yes, and there in the UK, they might say, John, John's a good guy, uh, talk to him. But now they would add, but don't get him started on Liverpool. Oh, please. <laughs> Yeah. And even that's great because people who support different teams know that at least there's there's a commonality around football and then you can get talking about that topic. I, I think I'm all for trying to put a little bit of your personality into your social media profiles, into your content so that people can learn a bit more than what your core service is because otherwise you'll, you'll probably fall foul of that thing that you said earlier, the sea of sameness. And I say in the book, you know, boring is the new risky. Yes. So you've got to kind of, you've got to dial it up a bit and put more of you into your content. And that's what I didn't do until let's say around 2016 or so. And my content was, wasn't succeeding before then because I was trying to play too much of a straight bat. And when I eventually got over myself and said, you know what, I'm just going to relax and just be me in my content. That's when results started to happen. So I just, counsel people as much as possible to just get over that fear as much as possible as quickly as possible and to put themselves into their content as much as possible boring is the new risky loved it underlined it twice but there was another line in the book john Esperian, that really spoke to me and it was i think it's reassuring for people that are creating content and it was before you can be good you have to be bad. And I'm sure there's a lot of marketing book podcast listeners that figure that I'm still working on the bad. But <laughs> explain what you mean by that. Yeah, it's it's this goes back to childhood really. When when we were children, we didn't have that fear of of doing something new. We didn't have the fear of standing up for the first time, walking for the first time riding a bike for the first time and we kind of somewhere in there i guess we know we're going to fail but you know th- this is something that we need to be inquisitive about we need to do we're just going to do it anyway even if we fall over but when we become adults we we, we become fearful you know I, I i can't possibly put out a video because what if someone says i'm fat what if someone says I'm not very good. What if someone says my lighting's not good or something? But no one smashes it out of the park on their first go. It, that just doesn't happen. You know, you look at every content creator and most of them leave their very first YouTube video there as a kind of <laughs> monument to how terrible they were when, when no one cared who they were. But that's okay because when you don't have an audience, you can kind of, you're kind of practicing in private. It's all good, but but no one no one is amazing from day one. You you need practice, so so you have to accept that before you can be good, you you need to be bad. That doesn't mean that you try to be bad. Obviously not. Oh, I'm not supposed but, to do that. <laughs> but it, it, it's a, just a necessary part of the process. You are not going to be an expert motorcycle rider from day one. You've got to ride the push bike first, and you'll you'll fall off the push bike when you try and do that, you know? So just accept that. And the more you practice, the sooner you'll get over those early difficulties and move on to, you know, cycling freely. Yes. It seems like if you can ask someone like, what are your hobbies? What are your interests? How'd you get started? What was it like when you first started and why'd you keep doing it? That's a, that's a great, um, that's a great idea. So moving on, you recommend creating a manifesto. Explain what you mean by that and why you think that's important. Yeah, I think just 
the whole me-centric mission statement thing just seems a little bit too worthy for me. I would rather give people a set of promises and then tell them, you know, you can call me out if I don't hold true to these things. I think that's much better. So give your audience some promises. So I say in the book, you know, if you had to give in your business, if you had to give your customers at least three promises right now, what would they be? And a lot of people haven't ever thought about that. But if you did think about it, you could probably publish a document that people could hold you accountable for. So I, 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 I've put this on my website. I call it a manifesto, which sounds a little bit highfalutin really, but it's just a load of promises about what people will get and what they won't get. You know, if you come to my site, you're not going to get guest posts. You're not going to get copied content. You're not going to get sales. You're not going to get embedded ads. You're not going to get horrible pop-ups that I absolutely hate. You're not going to get any of that stuff, but you are going to get helpful content. You are going to get clear and simple language. You you know, you're going to, you're going to get full transparency on pricing for every single service that I offer and, and a number of other things. So I think cast iron promises of you will get this, you won't get this, and then inviting people to hold you accountable. Um, I think that's a really, really important thing to do. And on, on your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, I'm going to include – it's going to be an Asperian festival, basically. But I am going to include your manifesto, which cool. is on your website. I'm looking at it right now, and you're laying down the law, and it's I, – I love it. So, John Asperian, are you – sitting down right now i am indeed <laughs> because if <In> my chair. <laughs> if you weren't sitting down i would want you to pull up a chair that's it <laughs> explain your chair framework okay so well i knew that when i was writing something about branding the, the readers of the book wouldn't suddenly click their fingers and come up with a brand identity and 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 know what kind of content that they would need to create in service of that brand. And so I thought, I need some kind of safety net here. I need a, a go-to catch-all that while you are developing the shape of your brand, you've got something that you can lean on that will that will see you through. And so I came up with CHAIR, which is an acronym, and it stands for Challenging, Helpful, Amusing, Interesting, and Relevant. And these are the five types of content that you can create, especially for social media, I think, that will in, that will generate engagement. And on social media, really, the number one metric, I think, is engagement comments, you know, showing how much time people have spent pouring their attention into your content. So if you can create content that challenges people, so for example, providing a divisive opinion or or provide or, or posing a question that provokes debate, if you can create helpful content that that, that elicits uh, further discussion, gratitude, if you can create amusing content that is highly shareable, and if you can create things that are interesting and moreover relevant, if you can create things that are along those lines, even if you don't have a clear personal brand identity yet, you will be creating content that is likely to get noticed, likely to get commented on and shared. And that's great for increasing your exposure. And I say particularly on LinkedIn, you know, the more exposure your content gets, the more uh, interest there will be in your profile. And it's always that your content tells, but your profile sells. So if you can get more people looking at your profile, you get more people wanting to connect with you and ultimately a small proportion of those will want to do business with you. So until you've got your personal brand sorted, lean on the chair framework for the types of content to create and you will start getting more engagement on your content. I love it. And slow down there, Mr. Esperian, because we're going to go through a couple of these things. Mm -hmm. Challenging, helpful, amusing, interesting, relevant. Now, in, at the bottom of one page here, I wrote to myself, because sometimes clients are saying, oh, we want to talk about ourselves and our products and projects we've done. And it just occurred to me, because I was visualizing this one dear client that, you know, like most humans, has trouble you know, not thinking about themselves and their own business. And I wrote, ask clients if it's something they would want to share if they received it. <laughs> 
I, I have to be careful because I don't want to sound like a loaded question, but it, on, on challenging, I just want to read this one part. You said, uh, without getting too Inception-ish, <laughs> the, talking about the movie that I'm familiar with and I really didn't like, <laughs> but it's important. It's kind of like it's kind of like The Matrix. I, I watched that movie and I'm just not – unfortunately, I don't think I'm bright enough to really enjoy <laughs> science fiction, but it was important that I saw that movie. So – Enough about me. You say, without getting too Inceptionish about this, it's good to seed ideas in your audience's mind such that it feels to them as though they arrived independently at a conclusion <laughs> you were already hinting at. So you know, the, the, the idea of challenging and then helpful, you mentioned uh, one of the best reactions I get to my content is along the lines of, I can't believe I didn't know that. Thank you so much. And then on amusing, again, I was uh, interested. You, you wrote half of uh, 1,000 marketers surveyed by Sprout Social in 2019 said social media posts that entertain were more effective in helping them reach their goals than discounts and sales content. Think about that. Giving people money off is not as effective as making people smile. Oh. And then you that's know, mad, isn't it? that's that isn't that mad because people think that you know money is the number one driver. Yes, if you, could, if you can just hook someone, then then money becomes irrelevant. Yes, and a number of the uh, sales books that have been on the podcast talk about how sales people will often say, "Oh no, it's all about price. I got to have the lowest price. It's so much about price," but. Apparently, uh, based on all this research, that's not true. That's just the one they hear about when the salesperson hasn't been able to offer value or, or differentiate. And there was even a book called Close Sales Faster by John Asher. And he talked about a study where th they determined that in a business-to-business -business buying situation – Price was much further down because people were much more worried about buying the wrong thing yeah. that was going to make them uh, their company less effective and lose them money. It was yeah. it was it was fascinating. But yet, I I just a couple months ago I was talking to a prospect, and it was like, nope, nope, all we, we just got to have the lowest price. Well, we're not talking to them anymore because <laughs> there's not much. Not much for us to do, um, but it, it, interesting, uh, the I and share, is you mentioned, again, uh, Mark Schaefer, and he said, the economic value of content that isn't seen or shared is zero, and that's what prompted me to want to write that um, line about there, you know, is this, is this something you, like, they say, oh, we want to do this email newsletter, and it's going to be about us, and I say, do you think, is that something folks might, might want to share? And, you, and then they go, well, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> so I'm able then to continue the discussion and help them sort of uh, discover what might be more important, not to get all inception -y on you. But then the, the thing about the relevance is that's another one where you can have something and you can be talking about something, but it's not relevant to your your business. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you could be talking around the general idea of things so it could be a kind of lifestyle thing so even if it's not directly relevant to your business if it speaks to the same truth of the lifestyle that you're trying to promote then it could still be relevant to the to the reader and that you know they'll say i heard an example about this the other day so you know you're selling parts for cars and that's kind of boring. And how much can you really write about that? But maybe you've got passion for vintage cars and car shows and, you know, the, the, the lifestyle that comes with that. So if you were to create content around that, then, then that can buy people in to this worldview that you're creating. And then by extension, they'll go, well, you know, I like these guys. I trust these guys. I'm going to buy my car parts from them. Mm -hmm. Whereas, whereas content that was purely on topic about, hey, this nut goes in this bolt. Well, you're going to struggle to really interest, amuse, 
and so on, people with, with, with purely content like that. Um, so, I mean, another good example, you may well have heard this one, is, is Chubby's Shorts, who, you know, they make shorts. <laughs> How much can you write about shorts? Um, and yet the, the, the whole content is framed around fun things that you can do on the weekends because it kind of speaks to the lifestyle of a fun, easygoing person who likes enjoying time out of the weekend while wearing their shorts. And so that the content feels relevant, even though it's not about the material or the zippers or, or, or anything that's really specific like that, um, but it still works. So if you can stay in the set, in the right ballpark, then you can create content that, um, that, that will speak to people and get people to buy into what you're doing. You mentioned motorcycles earlier. There's a website uh, here in the U.S. Well, I guess it's around the world, but uh, for motorcycle parts, they sell all kinds of things related to motorcycles. It's called Revzilla, hmm. and I'll include a link to it on your episode show notes. And they uh, they're selling a lot of the same parts that are and equipment that are. They don't sell motorcycles, but everything everything else, and they are just dominating on content because they're answering a lot of questions. And I have found myself going to the site all the time and they've got a real person. And when they are explaining like how to do something to your motorcycle, they have this uh, funny thing they call the, the beard scale of difficulty. And so if it's an easy repair, it's a, it's a short beard, but if it's a really difficult one, it's, it, it, we're talking three beards here, people, because a lot of motorcycle riders have, have beards and some of them have, have long ones. But it just that just uh, came to mind of, a, of a, some of the things you were, you were talking about. It's great, isn't it? Just a bit of fun, something quirky, something that you might mention to someone else. That's the kind of thing that will resonate. Yes, yes. So uh, a couple other questions. Explain what a pen portrait is. Okay, so I mean, this is more commonly known as a uh, as a buyer persona or a customer avatar, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much a staple in marketing is to know who it is that you're trying to appeal to, and so you write out, you know, descriptions of that person. You talk not only about demographics, as we covered earlier, that's not necessarily enough, but you need to talk about, you know, attitudes, opinions, motivations problems, fears, and, and you, 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 you produce this imagined person and you do what Jeff Bezos does at Amazon. You, you leave a, you know, a seat free for them in the boardroom and think, you know, what would Tony think of this? Is this good for Tina? Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps to steer your decisions because if you know who you're, who you're trying to reach, if you know, first of all, who you're trying to be, that's your brand identity, that's your content DNA, that's your shape, and you know who it is that you're trying to reach with whatever product or service you've got, then that point that's in the middle, you know, the thing that is still you and that appeals to that other person, that, that's a great place to be. You, you're going to know what is going to appeal to those people. You, you don't have any guesswork because you've, you've imagined a person. So a pen portrait is useful. And I've put some stats in the book that show that companies who invest some time and effort in creating pen portraits actually get better results, you know, get better sales figures. So it's not just a, a kind of fancy tick in the box marketing exercise that you do over a weekend. It actually informs real business decisions and leads to real business uh, results. And, and the, the, the counterpart to that, which perhaps you're about to ask me about, it is that you know your marketing should attract the, the right people, but it really ought to repel the wrong people. So <laughs> right. The poison portrait, yes. What is poison that? Portrait. That's actually, that's actually, I think, a better one to start with. Well, yeah, it is because it's really easy. If you've got loads of choices in front of you, it's very easy to pick out the things that you don't like really easy. It's much harder to pick out things that you do like. So it's it's easier to start with the negative and say, who is it that we don't want to serve? And the reason for doing that is so that you can spot red flags. And I've seen in my business countless times, I've dealt with clients who turn into, you know, difficult cases. I'm, I'm doing more work than I should for the money. They want to try and micromanage me and a few other different things, right? And so rather than just thinking, hey, I'm just chasing the best clients, I'm chasing the best money, 
I also want to think I'm trying to avoid headaches in my business. How can I avoid the headaches? The way I avoid them is to have an early warning system for those red flags. And if I spot a red flag, then I need to back away from this person. I I need not to engage with them for my own mental health and so that I can put more of my energy into the people I want to serve. So it's it's kind of a two-pronged approach. You want to be mindful of the people you don't want to serve. You build a poison portrait that says this is this is what to look out for in this this uh, is death. I, I call him a salesy douche canoe. Oh you know, <laughs> there you finally said it. <laughs> yeah, so I've got this tanned guy with the, you know, he's got the oversized gold watch and he's just really entitled and he's late to meetings and he talks over the top of you and he expects you to work on the weekends and a whole load of other crappy things that I don't want to be involved in. And I look out for those signs. And then I've got the pen portrait is the person I want to give all of my love and energy to. And they're the only customers I really want to serve because I know that they'll stick around, they'll spend more with me, they'll tell their friends and all of that good stuff. But I think if you just have one of those two, you're not doing yourself enough of a service. And my friend Doug Kessler says that your marketing should be like a magnet. It should attract, but it should also repel. And and until quite recently, I've been doing plenty of the attracting and really not very much of the repelling because that's just me. I'm a, I'm a habitual people pleaser, mm-hmm. so I don't want to say no to people. But really, you're going to avoid headaches if you learn to say no to the wrong person. Do me a favor and urge Doug Kessler to write a book I would love to interview him. And I've seen him several times and I've said, Doug, I've got an idea for a book. You need to write it. <laughs> you would need to have an explicit warning on your show for oh, that. And I do have one. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's the king of the F-bombs. Well, he and Gary Vaynerchuk, I guess. But yeah. in fact, one of the ideas I had for a book that I, I gave him, and you know, he's a very nice guy, uh, took it in. I'm sure he uh, thought I was a moron, but I'm used to that. <laughs> And I said, here's, a, here's an idea for you, Doug. Why don't you write a book and call it uh, Stop Talking About Your Effing Product? <laughs> but it's got to have that effing word in the, the title. But yeah, that would, that would be great. Also, this pen portrait, poison portrait, uh, they're so effective for p- companies that are just doing a little bit of sales planning. Like as I, one of the challenges I have with smaller companies is, you know, what, what, what is your ideal customer? And a lot of those answers can come from the CFO, uh, like in terms of who your most profitable customers are. But what, you know, what, what are your ideal customers and who are the ones you really want to avoid? And I've found that when I say who are your worst kind of customers, it, it's a half a second before I start hearing it. And what that does is it starts getting them thinking, it starts getting them dreaming about you know, who, their, who their ideal customers are and maybe what some of their expertise is for their company and where they might want to be focusing more of their attention. So there's so many uh, other things that we're not really going to have time to talk about, but I want to ask one other question, and it's got a little controversy in it. So get ready. Now, you mentioned that uh, one study that said a fact, this is about stories, okay? A fact wrapped in a story is 22 times more memorable than the plain fact alone. But then John Asperian goes on to say, honestly, I'm not mad about stories and storytelling and business <laughs> content, but perhaps only because the execution is often so poor. So John Asperian, what's your beef with uh, storytelling? What's, what's your concern there? Well, I, I think it, you know, a good story told well is fantastic. It is captivating. It does move you. It makes you remember stuff. Okay. So we, we, you know, we all know the Maya Angelou thing about, you know, people won't remember what you said and what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. So stories make you feel stuff and facts don't really do that. So I, I accept that. It's just that the execution often is so poor that you can start reading something and you can immediately catch yourself thinking, this guy's just trying to tell me a story here. <laughs> and and that, that kind of the shattering of that suspension of disbelief means that you're just kind of waiting for the fact you're, you're scanning the page saying, okay, just get to the point. Get to the point. <laughs> you haven't hooked me, right? So just, just 
forget the storytelling if it's going to be bad storytelling because all you're doing is just taking up my, my time um it, you you see this a lot in people moaning about things like recipes you know you just want to get to the recipe but no you you need to hear the the life story about how they discovered this thing in italy while they were backpacking and blah blah get to the point you know i i just came for the recipe so so sometimes you need to remember that you know People are time poor, and unless you're going to kill them with an amazing story, then then I, I think a half baked one will probably do more damage than good. So I guess I guess the answer to that is either don't bother or, or get a professional to do it. Now I I do not claim to be a storyteller. That's not me. If you want that in your business, please don't hire me because I'll, I'll I'll do a terrible job. I'm great at telling the facts clearly that that's my that's my superpower for making people go uh, don't get this to going oh right nice and it's simple i like it um but yeah story, storytelling is brilliant but only when it's done well right and uh, with that in mind i actually have another interview coming up in a couple of weeks with uh, park howell about his new book called brand bewitchery how to wield the story cycle system to craft spellbinding stories for your brand now, I know him, and it's a terrific book, but let me also say that I think, and if you hear that noise, it's me standing up on my soapbox, <laughs> I think marketers, when they're talking to civilians, and what I mean by that is people outside the marketing department, like your sales counterpart or your CEO or pretty much anyone else, need to be very careful when you start using words like storytelling. Because I don't think it's very well understood. No, it, it sounds like bedtime stories, doesn't it? It sounds like fairy tales. Yes, and, and that, that, or that they're making up something that's not true. Yeah, that's right. And those things don't lead. The, the, those ideas don't give you good feelings, you know. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right. Similarly, I I'm still up on the soapbox, but it's I think they need to be very careful when they start warbling on, as Mark Ritson would say, about branding, brands, building the brand, <laughs> uh, graphics. You, you got to talk more about accounting and revenue and pipeline and things like that, please, folks. You're not helping yourself by sounding like a, a negative perception of a, of a marketer. So, yeah. John, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think you need to be remembered for one thing in one place and it's not quick to make that dent so you don't grow biceps overnight um so you need to put in the effort and be remembered for one thing that is so simply said and yet it's one of the most difficult thing, <laughs> things for organizations to do so you're not being very helpful at all. No, I'm kidding. That was extremely well said. What is one thing a listener could do today to put in action just one of the many ideas from your book? Well, I, I think one of the, my best tips, which is about writing good content from chapter 27, is about reading your content out loud. Most people do not do that. And I say in the book, if you'd never say it, don't you dare leave it on the page. So whenever you've written something, if it's for a social media post, an email, a blog post, a glossy marketing brochure, I don't care what it is, you should read your content out loud. Or if your vocal cords are stressed, get your computer to read it out loud to you. And make sure that it sounds like it's you talking. And if it doesn't sound like you, if it sounds too fancy, too complex, and it's not you you need to edit it, take it off the page or change it somehow to simplify it. And people love, people love conversational writing. They might not notice it consciously, but it really makes a difference. Chapter 27 is titled, How to Write Good Content. And then chapter 28 is, How to Edit Your Own <laughs> Writing. Loved it. And you write, your content is a conversation, not a lecture. Write the way you speak and stop trying to sound clever. If you'd never say it out loud, don't you dare write it. And uh, there was another thing in here that I shared um, 
quite a bit of this with my content director just because it, it was largely an affirmation for him. And I said, hey, here's this other idea about uh, rather than printing out a page and reading it, which you really can notice things differently, put it in a different font. And he's like a he was a he's been a content director, but he was a business journalist before that. And he was like, yeah, I, I, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> so it's like, oh. Okay, yeah, well, because that's why you're such a good content director. But it was put everything in a different font, and you even mentioned the font I'd never heard of, and it was called Dyslexic. Open uh, Dyslexic, yeah. Yeah, Open Dyslexic. So that, that typeface has got fatter bottoms of the letters, and what that means is that for people who have dyslexia, the, the letter forms don't spin around in their head. It, like it anchors them because of the weight of the bottom of the the letter, and everyone, you know, could benefit from from proofreading their content when it's done in a different font. It's the equivalent of printing it out and reading it on paper. It's a different format. So if you change the color, change the size, change the style, change the background, it makes it look fresh, and you're more likely to spot errors that otherwise you would have to have printed the content out to see. So it's a really good. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, what books have most inspired your work and career? Well, I've already mentioned Known by Mark Schaefer. I mean, he's got so many good books, but I think that that personal branding handbook is just absolutely fantastic. And I think the greatest honor I've had about my book is that when Mark read through my manuscript, he described it as really strong, but he also said that it's the perfect companion to known. So if if you've read known or if you're aware of that and you read Mark's book and mine, I think I think they they kind of mesh well together. So that's probably my favorite business book. Another really, really good one is Deep Work by Cal Newport, which I'm sure I'm sure you'll have gone through before. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic piece of work. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, Marcus Sheridan's They Ask You Answer as well. That that is the that is the content marketing primer. So if you want to create content rather than plowing everything into ads, uh, that that's a great way to to get yourself started. Great books. And what I'll do is I will include in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, I'll include the interview I did with Mark Schaefer about known, and I agree completely. What a great book. And uh, also, I've interviewed Marcus Sheridan about the first and second edition. And the second edition I did uh, last, I think it was last year. And it's one of my favorites. It's right here (laughs) on my desk. I absolutely uh, love that book. And yes, you describe yourself as an Apple fanboy, but I'm a big fanboy of uh, Marcus Sheridan and, and, and Mark Schaefer. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, well, I've just mentioned guys so far, so I'm going to mention a couple of uh, women who I've met through LinkedIn who are coming up with um, books at the moment. Oh, so, thank you. Yes. Um, so my my colleague uh, Kim Boudreau Smith has her business called Her Boil Her Bold Voice, and she's going to be writing about female empowerment. That's coming soon. Uh, no working title for that one, but she's hoping to release sometime in 2020. And I've got another colleague who's kind of big in the States on LinkedIn, Brenda Meller, who's writing a book that's going to be called Social Media Pie. And she's releasing that later in 2020. So Kim and Brenda, two names to look out for. Uh, I think they're both going to be big when their books are released. So I'd highly recommend both of them. Oh, terrific. I'll make sure to include links. If their books are now, make sure to include links to their, their websites so people can, can learn more about them. And I mean, come on, John, you had me at pie. <laughs> mm. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to your uh, website, uh, actually, a couple links, including the manifesto and your LinkedIn profile. And I hope that listeners will uh, connect with you and, and seriously reach out to you and thank you for being uh, on the podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you have subscribed to the market on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Content DNA, Using Consistency and Congruence to Be the Same Shape Everywhere. The author is John Asperian. John, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Awesome, Doug. Thanks again for having me. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, I really appreciate it and would like to return your kind favor by mailing you a thank you note and include a Marketing Book Podcast bookmark and laptop sticker. Just message me on LinkedIn, your mailing address, anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And if you'd like to record a question that could be played and answered on a future episode, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details